All right. Hey. Hey. How we doing today? All right. Uh, how could you not be good? Uh, beautiful day out there. Uh, we got breakfast coming up, which is a treat. Uh, it felt kind of bad. We're trying to give Mike a little break up here. And then, of course, it fell on the weekend that the elders, including him, were serving breakfast. So he still got put to work there. Sometimes you just can't buy a break. And I feel bad personally because I know I didn't contribute a lot to uh, helping with that this morning. Uh, Part of it is I've been really sick over the past uh, week and a half, lost my voice, which the wife appreciated, and uh, <laughs> couldn't talk for a few days last weekend, and I think I'm okay now, but still provided a great excuse for not helping in the kitchen, but uh, even if I, it wasn't the sick thing for me staying out of the kitchen, I really need to stay out of kitchens because of my cooking. Uh, it's kind of a running joke in our family about how I learned to cook from my mom, who wasn't a great cook. And, you know, we were, my mom was a great sport. We were always ribbing her about everything. But uh, last weekend, Sherry made a big batch of chicken soup. And, and I looked at it, and I went, uh, this isn't like my mom's. She goes, really? What's different about it? I go, there's no feathers in it. <laughs> so... Decided to model mercy for you by not helping to cook today. Uh, today uh, we're doing what I consider to be an excellent series called Living by Grace. Because as you know, grace is what we're all about here at Hope Community Church. And I can't think of a better series to look at uh, some of the practical applications of grace, and especially in light of some of the challenges they had in the early church applying this very same system of beliefs. So uh, today, specifically, we're talking about faith or the law. Uh, I put our uh, today's worship or our today's uh, passage on the back so I could fit it on there. Maybe I'll start by reading this. This is out of the book of Galatians, the third chapter, the first 14 verses. The Bible says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, 
because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When the Bible says in this passage, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, that is a shout out to the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, the 21st chapter, the 22nd verse, it tells us that a man who is hung from a tree, and this particular NIV translation refers to a pole, but the word pole could equally be translated pole, a cross, a tree. If you remember the old gospel song, the old wooden cross, uh, you know, the cross being made out of a tree, out of wood. But even in the Old Testament, it says that cursed is anyone who is hung from a tree. In order to be hung to death in the Old Testament, you not only had to commit a crime punishable by death, but you had to really, really screw up. That was a special punishment to be cursed and shamed in that way. Generally, what they would do if you committed a crime guilty and deserving of death is they just take you outside of the city gates and stone you. <laughs> oh, that's better. <laughs> so, but that's how they usually dispensed capital punishment to people. Uh, just as an interesting aside, if anybody ever asks if you want to go outside of town and get stoned, <laughs> make sure they're not a Sadducee or a Pharisee. <laughs> just little pro tip for you. <laughs> but that's how they usually would do it. But there was a special curse for people hung from a tree. And when, uh, when we look at trees and how these play a role in this entire Bible story, to me it's rather fascinating because what we learn back in the book of Genesis is this whole mess really got started at the foot of trees. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden how there was one tree in that garden that we were specifically instructed to not partake of? Do you remember the name of that tree? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was another tree. There was a lot of trees for food in that garden, but there was also another different kind of a tree called the tree of life. And if you remember that Bible story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one tree that we were instructed to not partake of, I really believe that religion, as we use the word religion in a negative sense, religion was born in the Garden of Eden. It was born at the foot of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Law was created at the base of that same tree because 
if you think about it, religion and law are all about this set of scales, scales of justice, which then lead to scales of punishment. Because you really can't have law without punishment, can you? If there's a speed limit, but there's no cops or no uh, uh, fines for speeding, you really don't have a speed limit. <laughs> so anytime you make a law, you then have to create a punishment or some penalty for breaking the law, and you need a system to enforce the law and dispense that punishment or that justice. So there's a real complexity when you create law. And if you think about it, when it when it came to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all law, all of, of justice revolves around a division between two things, doesn't it? Right and wrong, good and bad. And that's what law is really all about. That's what the Ten Commandments are about, law. Don't do these things. Do these other things. That's what uh, the laws of our society are about. And interestingly, there's there's no reward for keeping the law, is there? If I drive to work every day for a week and I never run a stop sign or I never roll through one or I never break the speed limit, I don't get pulled over and get handed a good driving certificate. <laughs> Now, and I don't know about you, I'm not really particularly fond of people that keep traffic laws. <laughs> if I'm late for work and somebody's driving 54 and a 55 just to be safe, I don't really want to drive them off the road to give them a good driving certificate. So there's no reward for keeping the law. There really is only punishment for breaking it. So the whole thing is really based on negativity. And isn't it just true that all religion divides things according to this set of scales, good and bad? Especially if you get into organized religion. It always fascinated me how these different churches in town had their whole sets of different rules. Well, do this. Why? Because that's good. Well, don't do that. Why? Because that's bad. In one church, you could uh, eat meat on Friday, but you couldn't dance. In another church, you could dance, but you couldn't have musical instruments in church. And then there was another church I went to that, uh, God, what was their deal? Uh, God, it escapes me. But they all had these these different rules of what they consider. Oh, and one, you couldn't dance. <laughs> you could have music, just don't dance. And it was, But that's how, that's what religion does. That's what law does. You have good and evil. Right and wrong. What's interesting about Christ is when he came along, what he did is slid those scales aside and set up a whole different set of scales. The New Testament is not about dividing things according to some inherent goodness or badness. Rather, it's about dividing things according to truth and deception. See, Christ came to expose the lies and expose the liar. He didn't say stay away from the devil because he's bad. He said avoid doing what he suggests because he's a liar. He said that when the devil lies, he speaks his native tongue. He said he was a liar from the start, the father of all lies. 
And that's a really good reason to not follow anybody, because if you know they're a liar, why would you believe them? If he's going to sell you a bill of goods that's never going to get delivered on your dock anyway, you wouldn't do business with somebody like that. So Christ came to expose the lies, expose the liar, and meanwhile, what did he say about himself? Follow me because I'm good? No. I think you remember that at least once or maybe twice, somebody accused Christ of being good and tried to stick that label on him, and he kind of went off on him. (laughs) Why would you call me good? He didn't want anything to do with that label. That was the religious leaders that were all about labeling themselves as good. What did Christ say? In the King James, I think over a hundred times, he prefaced what he said with the statement, Verily, verily, I say unto you. And then he would tell them about himself, about God, about heaven. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. In a modern translation, that means I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. And later he went on to say, I am the truth, the way and the life. Christ was truth incarnate. So his deal was all about separating things according to truth and deception, not good and bad. And that makes perfect sense to me because the real problem in this world is not badness, but deception. And that's why the Bible makes as much sense today as it ever has, because if you really dig down to the roots of why people do what they do, as Mike has often taught, this is not a battle of behavior so much as a battle of belief. The real spiritual battleground in this world is the battleground of the mind. And we're seeing more and more deception being that we're bombarded with in today's society, that we sometimes you walk away from it all and throw the baby out with the bathwater and goes, who can know what's true anymore? just gives you a headache trying to sort through it all. But if we believe that Christ is true, that really helps us to focus every other bit of information we get. But we have to start with that. It's how we calibrate our compasses, so to speak. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. I'd rather trust what God says than anybody or anything else. And if we think about how this affects religion versus what I would call spirituality, because spirituality, the New Testament is all about spirit. And spirituality is about truth and deception. Nothing is inherently good or inherently bad, is it? That's why the New Testament says all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't say all things are good. Nothing is inherently good. But in God's hands, nothing is so bad that it can't be turned into some kind of a blessing, if not for me personally, for somebody around me. And conversely, in the devil's hands, anything that he gets a hold of can be forged into a weapon to beat us with. Money. Is money good or bad? Well, it depends on whose hands it's in. I've seen money do tremendous good. I've seen money mess people up. But it's not about the money. It's about 
where people's hearts are at and what they do with it. Uh, what else? Uh, uh, drugs, good or bad? Well, I've seen drugs kill people and destroy lives. I've seen drugs heal people. It depends on whose hands they're in and what they do with them. Guns, are guns good or bad? Well, it depends on who's holding them, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, we had another shooting here this uh, past couple of days, but well, the first thing they do is get on the phone and invite people over with more guns <laughs> to, because it all depends on who's holding them. There's nothing in this world is inherently good or inherently bad. And that's why if we try to divide things according to some nebulous idea of goodness or badness, we're going to miss the whole thing. And with that foundational understanding of how Christ divided things differently than we do, we can start to look at these passages and start to understand that uh, what was really going on in the Garden of Eden. because. When I first read that account in the Garden of Eden, the part that I latched on to was how after Adam and Eve sinned, how urgently God kicked them out of that garden. Do you remember that story? I mean, he not only expelled them from the Garden of Eden, but he put guards there at the entrance to keep them out and had flaming swords there at the entrance. I'm thinking, whoa, flaming swords. That's heavy. He must have really been mad. But if you really study that passage, see, it was not God's anger or his wrath that demanded that he drive Adam and Eve out of that garden. It was exactly the opposite. It was his love that drove them out. Why was it so important to get them out and keep them out of that garden? Because the tree of life was still in there. Had Adam and Eve partaken of the tree of life in a fallen state, they would have been doubly doomed. I mean, we think a long life is a blessing. Ask somebody older (laughs) if a long life is a blessing. Death is a blessing at some point. And that's why... When we start to understand that God's love and his mercy demanded that Adam and Eve had a limited life and they weren't allowed to live forever in the state they found themselves in, that was a good thing. And as we follow the Bible through with this tree thing, we learn that in that Garden of Eden, that is where the thing began because sin entered the world at that tree. And then sin was addressed at the tree, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where the we achieved peace with God and the punishment for sin was was removed to the point where we could get back to that tree of life. Do you know where the tree of life shows up again in the Bible? In the book of Revelation. Do you know where the tree of life is according to the book of Revelation? You can find this in Revelation 22, uh, the second and third verse, where it says, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The tree of life in the end times is in the New Jerusalem. It's in the center when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. The tree of life is in 
heaven in the new Jerusalem. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that forced us under law. We have the cross of Christ, which removed the curse of the law. And then we have a return to the tree of life. Pretty cool. And do you know what kills trees? Emerald ash borers. (laughs) Ask me how I know. (laughs) But the other thing, according to the Bible, that kills trees is a curse. Remember that part in there where where Christ cursed that fig tree and it withered and died? Somehow, curses kill trees. And when Christ became a curse on our behalf, what he did when the law was nailed to that cross, it killed that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It killed that tree of judgment which enabled us as human beings to access in a new state that tree of life. Now, I know that might sound kind of woo-woo-woo and kind of mystical, but if you really think about it, it's just how God writes the best scripts for things because how this all goes full circle for our benefit. And I think this leads the question then is, What are the practical applications then of the division between those people that still try to find salvation through the law versus those people that try to live by grace? What does that look like in the real world? I think that's an excellent question. If someone were to ask the question, why should you go to heaven? The wrong answer always, always starts with the phrase, well, I. The right answer always starts with, because he. You see, if you ask, why should somebody go to heaven? They go, well, because I am basically a good person. Or because I make sure my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Or because I'm Nice, because I think the unpardonable sin in parts of today's society is being mean. <laughs> you can get away a mean person, and if you're nice, then everything is going to be fine. Just don't offend anybody, don't hurt anybody's feelings, and you'll be fine. But you know, so I I, I should go to heaven because I'm nice, or I should go to heaven because it's not that I'm perfect, but I'm better than you. <laughs> God grades on a curve. I don't really need to be perfect. I just need to be a little better than the people around me. And you can see that throughout the Bible. Like one of the passages or a couple of them I put in here was examples of people drawing attention to themselves rather than being dependent on God's grace. One of those passages out of the book of Matthew uh, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what's God's will? To love, in a nutshell. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Man, that's kind of scary, isn't it? These are people that thought they were in. 
and they weren't. But it doesn't say that God turned on them or, who are you? I remember I met you a long time ago. I don't know you anymore. What was your name again? He doesn't say, I forgot you. He says, I never knew you. They were never right with God. And what were they putting their faith in? Two things. One, it had nothing to do with practical acts of service that actually loved other people or helped them in a practical way. Their focus was all on these woo-woo-woo, mystical, miraculous, pow kinds of demonstrations. Their focus was on prophesying and driving out demons and performing miracles. But it was a lot more on signs and wonders than it was on anything more practical. And the second focus was, again, you see how it says, did not we do this? Didn't we do that? Me, me, me. Look what I did. Let the gate swing wide. I'm strutting in there. That also gets driven home in Luke, the 18th chapter, where it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So once again, this is a guy that thought God grades on a curve. (laughs) Oh, as long as I'm better than these other bad people, I'll be fine. But again, his focus wasn't on what Christ did or what God did. It's what he did. So he deserves reward. And there are no rewards under the law. So beyond that, the other angle to this thing is that when we're bad, when we break the law, we also, it's hardwired into our systems, we know that a price has to be paid for every sin committed. We can't escape that because that's what law demands. And that's why a lot of people have guilty consciences and they feel bad a lot. And it always fascinates me. When we start to look at the ways in which people play God, most of them aren't ways I assume that people play God. It's a lot more subtle than that. Because one of the main ways I finally realize that I pretend to be God is when I do things wrong, without even realizing it, I tend to become my own judge, my own jury, and my own executioner. And I will mete out punishment to myself. You've often heard me say, usually through shedding my own blood, my own sweat, or my own tears. So I can do it through my own blood. I'm just literally going to beat myself up or subject myself to something painful. I'm going to hurt myself. I mean, there's people that cut themselves because of guilt and shame and remorse, and somehow that pain makes them not only feel alive, it 
ironically, it gives them a sort of peace because it's like they're paying down some cosmic debt. And if it's not through your own blood, it might be through your own sweat. But when I'm bad, I'm bad. But when I'm good, I'm very, very good. So I'm going to work this debt off. I'm going to do all these good things for people. And I'm going to just do it through my own works. And for still others, it's through their own tears. They'll just deny themselves pleasure or cause themselves misery. Subconsciously, they'll put themselves in positions where life is a veil of tears. And why do people do that? I think I told one time about this documentary I saw on HBO, and it was, I think the name of it was The Best Hotel on Skid Row. But they went into this old hotel and the worst part of town, and they got, interviewed all these different people to see what their backstory was. How did you end up on Skid Row? How did you end up in this place? And I'll never forget this one old guy. He was a veteran, I think, of World War II. And when he got out of the service uh, in the happiness of having won the war and being a war hero as far as, you know, everybody that got out of the service was praised after that war. And so he hooked up with some gal and she got pregnant, but they tried to get married and it didn't work out. So he had to abandon his family and abandon his child. And the guilt that that guy was racked with, he basically exiled himself to Skid Row and for the rest of his life lived in misery and poverty as a means of paying down this debt that he felt that he owed that he could never repay. What we're really saying to God is, you don't have to punish me in the next life. I'm getting a bunch of licks in right now. I'm actually going to hopefully balance this out before I die. You can't send me to hell. I just came from there. You can't punish me. I already got it done for you. And what is that if that's not playing God? So when we start to see how people did this, uh, here's a trick question. According to the New Testament, do you know how many different people have their stories told in the New Testament where they hung from a tree for the uh, for the uh, the propitiation of sins. And propitiation, of course, as Mike points out, means to appease or to make well with someone, to help change somebody's attitude from negative to positive. Do you know how many different people hung from a tree for the propitiation of sins according to the New Testament? I count four. Four different people that did that. Now, one we're very familiar with, Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God, voluntarily went to the cross. They didn't force him to go. They didn't murder him or slaughter him or kill him. He is very clear what happened that Thursday night in that Garden of Gethsemane. He made it very clear, I am going voluntarily to death. They didn't force him, and I love how he kind of mocked them, actually, because what do you got? They had pointy sticks, <laughs> you know, kind of like the people that went to get Baron von Frankenstein in the movies. They had torches and, you know, pitchforks. He goes, oh, that's all you got? You really need all that to take one little guy, me? But then he goes, here's what I've got. I've got legions and legions of angels with one word. I could slaughter every person on this planet a dozen times over. That's what I got. It says, you're not taking me by force. 
I'm voluntarily submitting to this. Love that story. So you have a man, Jesus, who went to the cross voluntarily to appease God. And the way he did that, the real mission, I believe, was not just to pay for our sins, but to really to deal once and for all with the curse of the law. And that was the story of Christ. But there's three other guys that did the same thing. Only they weren't paying for the sins of the world. They were paying for their own. Remember the story of Judas? In Matthew 27, it says, When Judas, who had betrayed Christ, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. Man, that's cold, isn't it? (laughs) They talked him into it, and then they just went, Ah, you're on your own. That's your problem. (sighs) Friends like that you don't need. (laughs) What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas felt bad. The blinders went on. He made some bad decisions. The blinders came off. He saw what he had done. He felt bad. But I think mainly he felt bad because of that his sins affected him, not just that they affected Christ or others. But in his selfish, self-centered remorse, what he ends up doing, he decides, I'm going to pay for this myself. Notice how it never occurred to him to go and find Christ and just say, Dude, I'm sorry. It never once occurred to him that he could have done that. He could have went back to the one he wronged and just go, I blew it. And, you know, those are magic words. I mean, I have a lot more respect for people instead of, like I said, that keep the law. I have more respect for people that do wrong and can admit it. I love that. And if somebody can just say, I blew it, I did wrong, I screwed up. What can I do to make this right? That Those are magic words. But he didn't do that. Instead, he went, ah, I got this. So his solution was to return the money and then take his own life, thinking his own life was going to pay for this and cover it up. What is that if not playing God? And there's another account. The other two people were the two criminals, the thieves, some translations say, that went to the cross along with Jesus. Uh, They were crucified, one on his right, one on his left. And this is what the book of Luke, the 23rd chapter, says about those guys. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Christ. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are getting. Uh, We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here you have two other people paying for their sins. In their case, I believe they're making propitiation not to God so much as to society. 
So they're paying for their sins by hanging from a cross, from a tree. And in one case, the guy was there very involuntarily, wasn't he? With his dying breath. He's really saying, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. I should be able to get off the hook. And his appeal to Christ, you know, if you're who you say you are, save us. Or save me. He didn't really care about that other fella. The other one was a lot more humble. And he said, yeah, I was put up here, but I accept this punishment because I deserve this. And he says, but Jesus doesn't. And he recognized Christ as being who he said he was. And he made a humble appeal. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in response, he saved him. What I always found interesting about that that passage is this is a guy who didn't have an opportunity to do any works. He didn't get down off that cross and go feed some hungry people or clothe the naked. or He didn't have any opportunity. I mean, this was it for him. And in, with his last breaths, he was saved. So what I get out of that, there's a lot of stuff going on in there, but one of them is how grace is instantaneous is how he was saved without the opportunity of any works. But what saved him was his faith, his belief. And that's where, you know, when we start seeing this, and all the ways that we tend to play God, it reminds me of my spiritual advisor years ago. And what he said to me one time was, do you know why we shouldn't play God? And I said, well, why not? He says, because God doesn't want us to play God. He wants us to be God. I said, what? But he went on to explain. He says, why on earth would you want to pretend to be something you can be in real life? That's kind of crazy, isn't it, when you think about it? You see, the the two lies that the serpent told Adam and Eve always crack me up. One of them is, for surely you shall not die. And the other is, for you shall be as gods. Where's the attraction in that? They were created by the real God in the image and likeness of the real God. They were had dominion over the earth just like God had dominion over heaven. You couldn't get any more godlike than that. I mean, they were gods. Geo, they were like gods, but they were, it was G-O-D apostrophe S. They were gods, God's children. And they exchanged the truth for a lie, thinking, no, I want to be just like a god, little g, instead of like the real god, capital G. That's like me having a real Rolex, and you come up with one of those $20 Mexican jobs and go, hey, you want to trade? Sure. <laughs> That's a good deal. Here, give me the fake one, and you take the real one. Boink. But that's really what happened in that Garden of Eden. That's that's not a good deal. The point of that simply is that we have an opportunity. When God puts the same spirit into these human bodies that he put into Christ's human body, we become a new creation and we become Christ-like. I was having lunch with a really good friend the other day, and he, he made a great statement I've been chewing on ever since. He says, it's a great thing to want to be Christ-like, not so much trying to be God-like. <laughs> I thought, that's pretty deep. 
You've heard me say before that there's a huge difference between doing God's work versus doing God's job. (laughs) A lot of us want to do his job. And you see, if I think about the qualities of God that we usually go to, what are the qualities of God? Well, he's all-seeing, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful. I expect myself to know everything, kind of a know-it-all. I expect myself to be stronger than I am. I love to think I'm all-powerful. I like to think that I'm all-seeing. I mean, God forbid something goes on in this world and I don't know about it. (laughs) I want information. So I would love to aspire to those. We think of God as a judge. I would love to be a judge. Oh, every day there's somebody I know that needs judging (laughs) and punishing. I'd love that job. I wish I was a cop. I see people do stupid things in traffic. God, I wish I could just light them up. I just, you know, <laughs> but not me, because I ran that stop, line, stop sign for a reason. <laughs> but them, they should be punished. So, but, you know, I would love to be a judge. I would love the power to forgive, the power to condemn, the power to punish. And we also sometimes perceive God as distant and impersonal. We perceive God as perfect. Well, I'm a perfectionist. I wish I could be perfect. Those are attributes of God that are attractive to me, and I would love to be God if I could have those qualities. But what are the attributes of being Christ-like? Well, Christ is usually portrayed as being gentle, humble, meek. Christ was a servant. He was kind. He was loving. He was approachable. He was personal. He was relational. When I think of God, I think of law. When I think of Christ, I think of grace. Very graceful, very gentle, very forgiving. Do I want those qualities? Nah, not so much, (laughs) quite frankly. But yet, those are really the more attractive qualities. Much better for us to try and become Christ-like than God-like. And you see, what makes the impossible possible, that's the definition of a miracle. God makes the impossible possible. Because when he changes our hearts, changes our desires, and gives us power beyond our human power, we can become not perfect, but better than we are. There's several different Bible words in there. And one of the words is when we're justified, we're declared righteous. As far as God's concerned, we're justified. We we are okay. But then we become sanctified, which means we actually do become better. And as we're sanctified, we are we become better than we were before. Now, we're not going to get fast-forwarded there, but when we die, we become glorified. And that's when we achieve perfection. So so we're declared righteous, we're becoming more righteous, and eventually we achieve righteousness for real. But in the meantime, it's spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So instead of playing God, we can portray God. And portray means to draw forth, reveal, or expose. What we're really doing is we're modeling God in an authentic way. Not pretending, but authentically becoming more like Christ. 
like C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the purpose of Christianity is to create little Christs, to become more Christ-like from the inside out, transformed, not just conforming, not just uh, being uh, changed from the outside in, but from the inside out. Bring up the worship team and uh, do our final song. And then we eat. <laughs> Tried to keep this short because I know everybody's hungry smelling that stuff cooking. So, thank you. We ask that you please help us to win the battle of beliefs. And the only way to win that battle is to believe in you and to believe in your promises. Despite everything the world says, just help us, Lord, to trust you in our only right response to what you've done, what you're doing, and what you are going to do is for us to humbly say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.